Linda and Jack have been together for 10 years. Linda wants to get married. Jack doesn't. Every time Linda brings up the issue, Jack accuses her of nagging him. He refuses to talk about the matter except to rationalize his stance. Linda feels confused and frustrated by the mixed messages that she gets from Jack. On the one hand, Jack is always telling her how much he loves her. But on the other hand, he refuses always to take the full and final step of commitment, of total commitment to her. Well, I guess in our day and age, we would call Jack a commitment phobic, afraid to commit, afraid to invest himself and his life in someone else. Apparently, there are lots of Jacks out there. If you search on the internet, you will find thousands of articles addressing what one should do in the event that you find yourself in a relationship with a commitment foe, usually a man, sometimes rarely a woman. What do you do when the person who says they love you never demonstrates that commitment to you? Well, that question is not only relevant to human relationships, It is also something that pertains to the spiritual relationship. The fact is that many people in their relation to God are commitment phobic. They say they love God. They claim to love the Lord Jesus Christ. But despite their loudest protestations... The Lord always seems to come second or third or fourth on their list of priorities. In the words of that great and esteemed song, the hokey cokey, they neither quite throw their whole selves in nor their whole selves out. They stand in a no man's land of non-commitment. Rather than throw their whole selves in to the whole will of of God. Now, if that is a description of you this morning, if that is a picture of my commitment today, then God would call us to address that half-hearted, mealy-mouthed kind of commitment. The great encouragement this morning is that in God's Word, there is inspiration that our commitment phobia can be overcome. The people of Judah, who had recently restored the ruined walls of Jerusalem, had for many, many years not been fully committed to the Lord. Like Jack and his uh, relationship to Linda, they had said that they loved the Lord. They, they They had said that they were committed but they hadn't really lived for the Lord. Until one day, 
in response to God's word. They made a personal and a public commitment to him. It was for them, as it may be for us today, time to commit. Right now, today, this might be a time for you to fully commit to the Lord. As we think about this, let's turn to the story of their commitment. It's Nehemiah chapter 10. As we think about our commitment, are you a Christian this morning? Are you a committed Christian this morning? It's Nehemiah chapter 10. Though in a strange anomaly, the story begins in the very last verse of chapter 9. So if you find chapter 10 on page 495, then just come back one verse. Nehemiah 9 verse 38. The people, as we thought last week, have just made their corporate confession of sin to the Lord. And then we read in the last verse of the chapter, in view of all this, in view of their confession, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Those who sealed it were. And now we get the list of the signatories. I'll just uh, summarize here. Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah. And then we get the priests, verse 2, from Zedekiah through to Shemaiah. Then in verse 9, the list of the Levites from Jeshua through to Beninu, they sealed the covenant. Followed in verse 14 by the leaders of the people from Parosh down to Bana. And then we pick up the reading from verse 28, after these leaders have sealed the covenant. The rest of the people... Priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God. And to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. 
We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine and oil, to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed, And is useful. Thank you too, Father, that all scripture testifies about Christ. So this morning we pray that as we study this passage, we might receive useful teaching, practical teaching. But we ask ultimately that this part of your word would lead us and draw us to Christ a commitment to him. We pray that for each one of us here today, in his glorious name. Amen. Now, if you have been here in recent weeks, you will know that in this part of Nehemiah's story, the people of God have been experiencing a wonderful work of God. God in these days had been working something of a revival among his people. Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem had not only resulted in the rebuilding of the city's walls, it had also sparked by a sovereign work of God's Spirit, a spiritual renewal in the lives of the people. The revival began back in chapter 8, you recall, when the word of God was read by Ezra, when it was preached, and when it was explained. As revival always does, it began with the word. And then last week, the revival gathered steam and pace. In chapter 9, the people responded to the word with a corporate confession of their sin. And so we have the word that leads to confession of sin. But now in chapter 10, now as we we turn to our study this morning, we find a third phase in this revival renewal process. As in response to God's word, 
as an extension now of their confession of sin, the people of God make a firm covenant commitment to the Lord. And what I would like us to do this morning is to examine this commitment that they made. It really is one of the most startling commitments in all of Scripture, one of the most decisive of all. And as we do so, uh, I want you to be aware for the fact that our commitment level will be put under the microscope as we look at this. Now, I want us to observe two things together, and I hope uh, you have your Bible still in front of you and open at Nehemiah 10. And the first thing I want us to observe about this Nehemiah 10 commitment is this. Number one, I want us to see that it was a decisive commitment. It was a decisive commitment. There was nothing unclear, unsure, or understated about this commitment. It wasn't half-hearted. It was unequivocal and unmistakable. It was undeniably clear to any casual observer looking on that these folk were throwing their whole selves in to the whole will of God as revealed in his word. So in what ways do we see the decisive nature of their commitment? Well, to begin with, notice that their commitment was written down. It was written out. Chapter 9, verse 38, tells us that, that they were making a binding agreement, putting it in writing. That shows us it was decisive. That shows us that they meant business. Taking time to write down a commitment shows a level of seriousness, does it not? Writing down a commitment also gives a permanent record of what is being promised and what is being proposed. This is what the people do. They take out their quills and they write out their commitment. Now, the specifics of what they committed, we find after the long list of names in verses 30 to 39. We'll come to this momentarily, but in essence, they were promising on paper to obey God's law, the first five books of the Bible, our Old Testament, in its specificity and in its entirety, to show how serious they were they did not merely speak out the commitment, they wrote down the commitment. Now, I don't believe that there is necessarily a biblical mandate for us to write down as Christians every commitment we make to the Lord Jesus. Neither do I think the Bible would necessarily exclude the practice provided we recognize that in the days in which we live, we live under grace and not under law, provided it is not a legalistic kind of situation. What we do know is that in biblical times, and throughout indeed the history of the church, many have been sharpened in their thinking, have been focused in their resolve by writing down their commitments. We could mention many examples. You could mention someone like Jonathan Edwards, the great American revival preacher, 
who, when he was 21 years of age, wrote down 70 resolutions. Resolve number one. Resolve number two. And he listed out all the commitments he was making to the Lord for his life ahead. Even today, many churches write down their commitments in terms of a church covenant. Whereas an entire congregation, we write down and we agree to what we believe Scripture is calling us to be. Actually, even here at Charlotte Chapel, you know, don't you, that we write down our commitments. We have church membership forms. And when someone becomes a church member, they don't just merely stand up the front and say they want to be a member. They fill in a form. They write down their commitment. They have to sign up to particular things. And then they sign their name at the bottom of the document. It was interesting, incidentally, that this also happens here too. Not only was the commitment written down, but secondly, it was personally signed. Verse uh, 38 again speaks of the leaders, Levites, and priests affixing their seals to the document. Now, seals were the ancient equivalent of modern signatures. Rather than signing your name with a pen on something, usually it would be perhaps the ring on your finger. It would have a, a particular design on it that would be specific to you, and you would impress it on a document. You would put your seal on it to sign it as it were. And so we, here we have these folks, and they're not only writing down their commitments, but they're putting their signatures at the bottom. Now, this, again, is something very decisive, isn't it? You know how it is when you're filling out some form or other, and you're going through at lightning speed. Tick, tick, tick. Squiggle, squiggle, squiggle. You're moving really fast. You're breezing through until you come to the little word signature. You pause over that, don't you? You have a little relook over the document. You think, am I signing my life away here? You take it more seriously, don't you, when you have to put your name to something. These folks were deadly serious about this commitment. They signed on the line. And what I really love about it, one of the things is this. The leaders took the lead in signing on the line. Did you notice that? It, it was the, the leaders, it was the, the Levites and the priests. It was the spiritual leadership of the people who signed, who sealed the document. These leaders didn't sit on their hands and say to the people, you guys need to be committed. Get up there and make the covenant. They led the way. They set by example. They were the first to put their names to it. Eighty-four people, leaders, came up the front and they sealed the commitment themselves. Nehemiah, unsurprisingly, led the charge in verse 1. If uh, we were doing something like this in Charlotte Chapel, it would be perhaps uh, us developing a church covenant and it would be like the elders, the deacons, the pastoral group leaders, and so on, the pastoral team being the first to sign on the line. This commitment was personally signed. It was written down. It was also decisive in that it was corporately agreed. While the leaders took the lead, it wasn't as if the people weren't following behind. Uh, you notice that it is indeed only the leaders who sign the covenant. 
It would have been unrealistic for the whole people, thousands of them perhaps, to have continued coming forward and sealing the covenant themselves. A sort of a Congo line of, of, of signatories. It would have taken them weeks probably to all sign it. So instead, the, the leaders seal the covenant as representatives of the people. Verse 28 and 9 make it quite clear that the rest of the people stood shoulder to shoulder with what was happening. Verse 29, they joined these brothers, the nobles. Indeed, they bound themselves to the covenant. One and all, every single person in the community, without exception, they did it, interestingly, in public and not in private. How much easier it is to make personal, private commitments in our room, behind closed doors. How much more difficult it is to stand up in the congregation and say, I belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to me. With that, there comes a corporate accountability. Folks will say to you, don't you remember that you were baptized in such and such a day? Don't you remember that you committed publicly to be invested in this particular fellowship? This commitment was public. It was corporately agreed in the public place. And finally, notice, it was also verbally ratified. I mean, as if writing it down wasn't enough, as if signing your name on it wasn't enough, as if doing it corporately and in public wasn't enough, now the people add to this an oath. Now, this is uh, what they did in many Old Testament covenants. Usually the covenant was written down, but it was typically accompanied, the textual, with the verbal. You would speak out a promise, we might say, an oath of commitment. And this uh, would bind you to the covenant. You see it in verse 29, that the people chose to bind themselves with a curse and with an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses. They say, they speak it out, that they will obey all of the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, which they had heard in recent days, which they had studied in recent days. They now say, they promise that they will obey it. They realize, as I hope we do too, that hearing the Bible preached is not enough. They promise we will obey it. But look at what they also do. Not just promise, verse 29. They bound themselves with a curse. Now, again, this is, this is something they did in the Old Testament covenants. They would bind themselves with a curse. It was a kind of a two-sided coin. The positive side of the coin was that you promised by an oath to obey God's word. And if you obeyed that word, then God would bless you. You kept your side of the bargain, God would keep his by blessing you in all sorts of ways. The reverse side of the coin, however, the negative side of the coin, was that you also bound yourself with a curse. And you said that if I don't obey this covenant, if I get out of step with what I have committed to, then I will remove myself from the sphere of God's blessing and I will come under his discipline and his judgment, his curse. There was this blessing and a curse dynamic going on in the Old Testament covenants. And these people realize this. 
They realize that if they obey their oath, if they follow through, they will be blessed. But they also realize this was a serious commitment because if they broke it, God's curse would come upon their head. Now that shows us certainly how serious they were. Maybe, however, uh, you're wondering to yourself, well, should Christians make oaths in this kind of way? Maybe you're a, a new Christian and you went along to the discipleship class and you say, I remember the, uh, the, the class on prayer and the class on uh, Bible reading, but I don't remember the class on curses and oaths. That's because there wasn't one. We do believe this is in the Bible, but it is in the Old Testament part of the Bible and it's under the Old Covenant in the Bible. We believe that because of the coming of Jesus that the curse has been done away with. The wonderful thing is that when Jesus died on the cross, he bore the curse of God that was due for all of our unfaithfulness. Jesus also said in the Gospels that we should not bind ourselves to promises with oaths. You remember that? He said, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Now, I think on that basis, we shouldn't be throwing around curses and oaths today. However, that is not to say that Jesus didn't call for radical steps of commitment. He did say we shouldn't do it with a curse and with an oath. But don't be mistaken into thinking that Jesus didn't call for radical steps of faith and obedience. You know, one time he said to a group of young men who were fishing, it was their living, and he said, leave your nets and come follow me. Leave behind your business. Come follow me. That's what you call a decisive commitment. He said to a rich young man who loved his money and who was loaded with money, he said, give it all away to the poor and come follow me. Then you can be my disciple. That's what you call a decisive commitment. There was another guy, he came, and he'd just been bereaved of his father. And Jesus said, Come follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Because Jesus even takes precedence over family ties and commitments. Jesus was someone who called for radical, decisive commitments. It's the kind of commitment today that if you're not a Christian, Jesus calls you to. I wish I could say to you this morning that choosing to follow Jesus is the easy option. I wish I could say to you today, because it would be an easier sell, that if you came to follow Jesus, you could just apportion him a part of your life, a little segment that you would enjoy on a Sunday, or maybe on a midweek evening. But the truth of the matter is that for a whole salvation, Jesus demands a whole commitment for us to turn totally from our sin, for us to put our full trust in him. And for us to live a life of total commitment. I wonder if you have ever made a decisive commitment to follow Jesus. I'm not talking about a meeting when you were 14 when you lifted up your hand and said, I believe in Jesus. Have you made a decisive commitment that has actually turned your life around where people can see you're walking in a new direction? Has it been decisive? If so... Have you marked that fact publicly by baptism? That's the next step of commitment. Have you publicly said, 
Jesus died for me, and he rose for me, and I want to declare it. If so, if you believe, and if you're baptized, have you become a member of a local church, whichever church that is? Or are you waiting in the wings with some kind of spiritual commitment phobia? And if you are a member of a church, do you live like a Christian on a Sunday and then live like a pagan on a Monday? Are you a part-time Christian? Do we say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, yet not do what he says? Or not do most of what he says? Is your commitment level lower significantly than 100%? Jesus isn't looking for hokey-cokey Christians who are kind of half in, half out, and don't quite know where they are. Will we not just talk our Christianity, but walk our Christianity? Well, these folks made a decisive commitment. It is impressive. It is a challenge to me, and I'm sure it will be to each of us this morning. But I want us to see one more thing about it. It was not only a decisive commitment. It was, secondly, a detailed commitment. A detailed commitment. I'm sure many of us have uh, made the mistake of signing on the line, signing up to the car or something, signing up to the house, and then reading the small print. The small print's deadly, isn't it? When we come to follow Jesus, we need to recognize it's not just one big commitment. It has small print. It has detailed obediences that come with it. And this is what we see in this passage. It's what we see across the scriptures. You remember one time in the ministry of John the Baptist, he was preaching to a large crowd, not unlike this. He was preaching with great power and with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the people were literally coming in their droves to turn from their sins. But you remember what happened in that story. The people began to say, how should I come personally? And John answered with the small print. He pointed to some folks and he said, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Some tax collectors then came along. They said, we want to, to repent. We want to obey. What does it mean for us? And John said to them, don't collect more than you have to. Because that's what they were doing. They were robbing people. Some soldiers then came along and, and they said, what about us? What does it mean for us to live a life of repentance? And John said to them, don't accuse people falsely and extort them. Because that's what the soldier's particular sin was. See, what John was doing was shrinking down the, the big commitment, the overall repentance into small and specific details that pertain to them. And in Nehemiah 8, verses 30 to 39, that section, maybe you wondered what it was all about. With all these specific obediences, this is exactly what we see here. The big commitment of verses 28 and 9, an oath to obey the law of the Lord, is now boiled down into specifics that were relevant to these people. 
I mean, the law was, a, was pretty huge, wasn't it? Five huge scrolls. It's easy to say we're going to obey the whole law. But how would this play out particularly in their sinful lives? But what we see is a number of specific commitments that relate to their specific sins. Let me just briefly list them to you with just a little comment. First, they agree to no foreign marriages, verse 30. Not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters and sons. See, this was one particular command where they had been disobedient out of convenience. It was often financially advantageous for these poor Jews who had returned from exile to marry in to foreign families who had money. Many of the Jews had been intermarrying. And the problem wasn't so much that it was interracial, but that it was interreligious. God had frequently warned his people, as he did, you remember, to Solomon many years before, that if they married wives and husbands of other nations, they would lead them away to idols. And that's what happened. God forbade it in his word, and now the people recognize their sin, and so they commit specifically to this point of the law. Another detail of their commitment was to no Sabbath trading, verse 31. Again, this was something clearly forbidden in various places throughout the law, that the Jews should not work or trade on the Sabbath day, or indeed on any of the holy days. It seemed, however, that a loophole had emerged. Foreign traders who had no religious qualms about trading on the Sabbath day were coming into Jerusalem and were selling goods. It wasn't so much that the Jews were selling, but they were buying from these traders. Technically, maybe they could argue, it was the foreigners who were working and not them who were doing the work. They were just buying the goods. But now the people come to realize that the spirit of the Sabbath was being violated. So they commit to this specific. Another specific commitment they made was to no seventh-year harvest, verse 30 again. The Lord stipulated that every seventh year a farmer should rest his land and not work the soil. This was a provision, no doubt, for the land. You know, the Bible was ecologically sensitive before anyone started coming up with these notions. It was also a reminder, the seventh-year rest, of God's Sabbath rest, that God rested on the seventh day. And it was also a provision for the poor. Because in that seventh year, when the farmer wasn't doing his work, some things might still grow, and the poor could come, and they could have food for their empty stomachs. The people had been violating this specific, and now they commit to it afresh. And then you notice three more things relating to the temple. They restore the temple tax, a yearly contribution to the upkeep of the temple. They restore the wood contribution, where communities would take turns to bring wood for the burnt offering that was always burning in the temple area. must have taken a lot of wood, because the fire was never to go out, and the folks had been neglecting this. They say, we're going to do this. And then finally, they also reestablished the tithe. The tenth of all the people, uh, of what the people earned and owned, was to be given as a wage to the Levites. 
the first fruit of their crops and of their animals was to be given to the Lord's service. Now, what is key to grasp here is is not so much what all of these specifics were, though some of them are intriguing to do a bit of digging on. The issue is to grasp that their big commitment was worked out in specific obediences. That they didn't just say, we're going to obey the whole thing. They said, that means we're going to do A, we're going to do B, and we're going to do C. These folks weren't just talking the talk when they said, we're going to obey the whole law. They spelled out how they were going to do it. Isn't that interesting? Let me just lean on this for a moment and say this, that it is so easy to say amen at the end of a sermon and go out of the door with absolutely no foggiest idea about how we're going to apply it. Now, in some measure, that is part of the job of the preachers in the pulpit, isn't it? To suggest the lines of application so that you have some notion of how the Bible applies. But at the same time, frequently in Scripture, we find that the responsibility rests most strongly with the hearers of God's Word. See, here were these folks. They had heard Ezra reading the law for some time. They had heard it being preached but they had gone away and they had thought through in their own lives how the word particularly applied to them. And now they came back and they started to make their commitments on that basis. I know a couple of churches that at the end of the services, they have a sort of a publicized two-minute silence. Everybody knows. And the people sit And the time is to reflect on how the sermon applies to you. Before you go out the door, how does it apply? And people think that through and they pray that through. Now, I'm not suggesting that we necessarily introduce that at Charlotte Chapel. But do you have a two minutes or a five minutes or a ten minutes where you sit down and you actually work it through? Otherwise, you know, it's so easy to say, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. But not be specifically applying God's word. That's no use. Maybe you say, how do, I, how do I do that? Even if I take the time. Well, part of it, of course, is to ask some good questions, isn't it? Of what we've heard. There are a number of, of great application questions that are not original to me which are very simple and which are often used by many folk. I'm going to put a few of them up on the screen and they'll be on the website as well this week. And so these are some simple questions that you can use at the end of a sermon, at the end of any Bible study to think through application. Things like this. Is there an example for me to follow in the passage? Is there an example? Is there a command for me to obey? Is there a doctrine here, a truth for me to believe? Is there a sin here? Has God put his finger on a sin in my heart and in my life that I need to repent of and I need to address? Not just the guy sitting next to me. This is a good sermon for him. Is there a truth about God's person and work that has gripped me and that is leading me to praise him in a new way? 
questions such as these turns mere hearers into doers, into appliers. The people of Jerusalem made the decisive commitment. That's important. But they also worked it out in nitty-gritty obedience. But in conclusion, there is a sad end and a sad twist to the tale. And we don't find it uh, here in uh, chapter 10. Indeed, even as we go into chapter 11 and 12, it still seems pretty positive. It seems as if things are going okay. But, but as we come to the very last chapter, to the, the 13th chapter, we discover, in fact, that some of these commitments were not kept. I don't want to give the total spoiler, as some people do when they've been to see a movie. But suffice to say, Nehemiah discovered, in the end, that some of these people had broken some of their commitments. For example, he found that though they had pledged that they would marry no foreign wives, no foreign husbands, that many of the people had gone back to doing it. These people had broke their promises, as all human beings have, They had been unfaithful to their commitment to the Lord. And so it leaves me and it leaves you with a question as we finish. We've talked about commitments. We've talked about the need to commit. But are our commitments enough? Are our commitments in the end sufficient? The answer, of course, is no. They are important, but they are not finally sufficient. That's the reason why the Bible doesn't end in the Old Testament with the book of Nehemiah. That's the reason why we go on to a New Testament and to a new covenant. When one comes into the world who never made a promise and failed to keep it. One who uniquely and peerlessly obeyed God's law to the detail. He said that he had come to fulfill the law and he did. The Lord Jesus Christ who kept the law sinlessly and then died on a cross for lawbreakers where God punished him for the unfaithfulness of me and of you. The cross shows us that our commitments are not finally enough. Our promises, our biblical applications, as important as they are, are not sufficient. On the basis of Christ's commitment, he went to a cross. You remember he was in the garden of Gethsemane, and he didn't feel, would have you have felt that way, to go through with it. And he said, not my will, but thine be done. It was his commitment to God, you see. And it took him all the way to a blooded Calvary, to the suffering that we will never understand. And on that basis, the basis of his mercy that's available at the cross, he calls us to commit our lives to him. In view of God's mercy, give yourselves to God as living sacrifices. It's time to commit. But just remember, you're committing on the basis of his mercy, not on the basis of your merit or of your effort. An old hymn comes to mind. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. 
Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. That's the good news of the gospel today. He committed everything to save you. Will you commit fully to serve him? Let us pray.